So I was just reading today about a journalist at the Seattle Post Intelligencer newspaper who really wanted to understand her audience and the issues that mattered to them. So she put out an open invitation to readers of the newspaper to meet her each week after work at a local coffee shop to just have a chat about the issues that mattered to them. Not initially for story ideas, but just to meet and greet her readers and to, and to really get to know them. Um, now, our ISIS Energy news business is too global to be able to organise anything so local, uh, unfortunately. But today we want to show you a bit of a glimpse into how we are gathering reader feedback and how that's shaping our coverage. I'm Miriam Sears and I'm taking you into the newsroom. Now, just before we get started, I wanted to give this podcast that you're listening to a quick shameless plug. Our ISIS Energy podcast features informative episodes from our reporters, as well as other episodes from this Into the Newsroom series. We're on Spotify and iTunes, so if you listen, like and subscribe, you can get alerts straight to your phone when new episodes have been published. Now, I've got uh, Ben Samuel with me here today, who's the editor of our uh, main gas report, ESGM. Hello, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> and Aaron as well, Aaron Tura, who um, writes a lot of analysis pieces for us, uh, really looking at the uh, big NVP markets and, and what's happening in that side of the world. Yeah, hello, Miriam. Excited to uh, be on this podcast today. <laughs> um, now, I've, I've got Ben and Aaron in uh, today to join us for this little glimpse into how at, at ISIS we're gathering reader feedback and how we're using that to make decisions about um, our coverage. Uh, and that's because Aaron has been involved in uh, launching a new type of content for our gas report um, that Ben has been overseeing and uh, and it's a little bit different to what we've been doing lately and it's based on the the yeah. result of fe use, uh, reader feedback. Ben, maybe do you want to just give us a bit of a uh, description or, or give us the context on why we decided to, to write this new s sort of story? Yeah, sure. So... Um Basically, this is because traditionally our business has been uh, just exclusively kind of Europe focused. Um, back in the day, you know, the gas markets were, were very, very isolated in terms of, um, you know, you could only really connect between countries uh, via pipeline. Um, but LNG has kind of changed all that. Um, LNG has been around for a long time, but, it, you know, we, we've recently seen kind of a dramatic increase um, in the amount of gas that, that's being delivered via this method. Um, and so, you know, this has kind of changed the way that we, we've started to look at gas markets and, and you know, they've become more um, of a global proposition. And for that reason, um, we've, we've started to run a bit more analysis looking at, at those opportunities worldwide, um, as opposed to just kind of focusing things on Europe all the time. Um, and again, this, this has partly been driven by, you know, our customer base in Asia. Um, that are very keen to understand, um, you know, these global kind of opportunities in terms of sort of where LNG goes and the pricing behind that. So, you know, that's something that we, we've really been uh, pushing and, and kind of Aaron has been uh, leading the charge on, on delivering this kind of analysis. And I guess with the whole LNG oversupply in Europe that's happening at the moment, our readers um, are, all of their attention is on LNG and, and what's happening there and 
what's going to happen next is it going to continue or will it dwindle off at some point later this year so um, this type of analysis uh, is the sort of thing that our, our readers are asking for and wanting to read more of yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, for some people, there's actually, you know, a commercial decision here as well. Um, you know, the, the oversupply that we've got in Europe at the moment is really a result of, of oversupply in Asia, where, where companies have kind of overcontracted on their on their LNG import volumes. Um, Asian demand has been was fairly weak over the summer, which has kind of left quite a big overhang. Um, and so, you know, if you're a buyer in, say, Japan, and you know, you've over, over contracted on your LNG, um, you're looking for somewhere to, to kind of move any excess volumes. Well, you know, Europe's the best place for that, really. And that means that all of a sudden, you know, a kind of buyer in Japan has to kind of be, you know, aware of, of pricing in Europe, you know, wherever, where are the best pricing points to kind of divert any cargoes. And so, um, yeah, you know, this is this is something that our readers are interested in. And as I say, you know, this is kind of, uh, really un underpinning some commercial decisions, um, you know, particularly for those buyers in Asia. Yeah. Um, Aaron, two questions. Yeah. The first question, can you describe in layman's terms, mm -hmm. <laughs> because this is, I mean, uh, a, a complex article that you're writing, but, it, it, but uh, in layman's terms, can you just kind of give us an overview mm -hmm. of what the, the story is yeah. that you've started to, to do regularly? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure, Miriam. Well, essentially what we want to provide our readers um, is essentially kind of look at where the global arbitrage is. Um, is it in the East Asian Pacific or is it in the Atlantic Basin? So typically I'd take the two largest uh, gas hubs in Europe, so that's the MVP and the TTF. Um, I'd look at their month ahead all the way out to month plus three um, hub prices and then we'd convert them into dollars per MMBTU. Mm -hmm. So on our LNG Edge uh, website we have our ISIS price assessments for the East Asian spot market, um, and they're all in dollars per MMBTU. Um, that's typically because LNG is still indexed to Brent in some cases. Um, and then what we'd essentially, well, what I'd essentially do is, and then I'll kind of look at where the premium lies. Mm. But the important factor to kind of get across is just because there's a premium in one kind of um, area on the globe doesn't mean that that's where the spot cargoes will go. Um, so then typically what I'll do is I'll take a Qatari-based uh, LNG source and um, then I'll take a uh, LNG terminal in Britain so the Isle of Grain and um, then I'll calculate the shipping costs um, from there um, from Qatar to Britain then I'll do the same for that to Sendai in Japan um, so then essentially if there is a premium in Asia but the shipping costs are higher then that kind of erodes that entire premium mm. so LNG sellers will still be looking at more attractive prices across Northwest Europe and then I do the same for the US, so I'd pick Corpus Christi um, or even the new LNG terminal that just come online this week, which is the Cameron LNG. Um, and then I do the shipping costs from there to again Isle of Grain or even Gate in the Netherlands and then the same to Sendai, Japan. Um, I think it's, it's important to kind of get across as well, um, even though there may be a premium somewhere, even if shipping costs kind of uh, erode that premium, I think there's more production capacity coming online which is increasing the competition because the US is now becoming the fourth largest LNG uh, pro uh, producer um, and then simply shipping that across the Atlantic. Mm. Northwest Europe will continue to get this regardless if, if the premium is 2 or $3 per MMBTU in Asia. Um, and I think given the current price spreads we're seeing at the moment, um, 
that European reloads as well have been pretty much killed off since November last year. Um, I was just speaking to one of our uh, LNG analysts, um, Ed Cox, um, who does kind of chip in in these stories as well. He was saying that the premium needs to be around 2 to $3 at least um, to kind of encourage LNG sellers to look elsewhere. Um, so yeah, that's kind of all the processes that go into this story. And then as Ben was alluding to, um, there's a lot of kind of people in the market that are looking at this because a lot of gas in the supply mix obviously kind of hampers you know, coal fire generation. Um, you obviously have to incorporate your carbon prices um, and then seeing where that fuel switching levels are, uh, which is very important for utilities. Um, so that's kind of all the inputs that go into the story. Yeah. Um, so just in case anyone got lost in the yeah. middle of all, all of those different inputs that get into the story, it's basically comparing costs and deciding uh, mm -hmm. based on the, the price differences uh, taking away the shipping costs for sure yeah and then lots of other different factors but trying to predict how likely it is mm -hmm. uh, or where where LNG is likely to go in the coming months yeah to kind of sum it, sum it up um, my second question okay. was were you able to just sit down and write this or was there a lot of information gathering to try to get to a stage where you mm -hmm. were ready to go um, because mm -hmm. we, we hadn't really done this type of yeah. um, big overview type piece before where we were converting mm -hmm. uh, European prices into dollars per MMBTU and yeah. doing all those uh, regular comparisons at mm -hmm. other markets. Yeah, for sure. Um, so actually the gathering of data for this particular type of story can be quite complex. Um, I think initially when the first story was run, it took me about a day and a half just to get all the data points um, kind of collated into one area and now that is set up it's a bit easier but essentially I'd get the um, M MBP and TTF prices um, from all of our data records that we store anyway in-house then I'd go on the LNG edge um, look at the dollar per MMBTU prices I'd also kind of take a walk to the LNG desk and just speak to them um, just to make sure there's something that I need to be kind of covering within the story mm. um, and then it's a very cross-commodity kind of story because I always talk to the power team to see what's happening in the carbon markets, especially because um, the carbon kind of surge since week 17 has kind of squeezed out coal-fired generators recently, mm. uh, especially in the UK, um, which just kind of broke a record. Um, so yeah, um, those I think are the main kind of data points that I kind of go out and retrieve. Um, and then from there, it's just, yeah, just write it and yeah. yeah. So, so this is, I guess, an example of a story that was born from uh, user feedback and trying to understand who our readers are and what they want to read about, read about mm -hmm. in our reports. One thing that we do here at ISIS, uh, every journalist who goes to an event or has a meeting um, with a contact or, or a discussion with a contact, um, they're really encouraged to ask their their readers or their contacts maybe they're not readers but but what do they think of our reports and the news that we're writing and do they have any feedback and what would they like to be reading about and um so and and we've got a, a really big team so lots of people are doing that and then they're coming back and we've got a document that they fill out and uh our editor team editor team which ben is one um will regularly i think it's once a quarter um 
maybe or once a well yeah yeah well we're stepping this up now which we're, <laughs> we're trying to do it uh, monthly well monthly. well we're, well we're trying to create like a monthly sort of action in terms of you know what what feedback have we got and and how can we actually do something about that um of course it, it's not always easy to do that um you know and it's and it's kind of hard to please everyone because different people want want different things out of our publication but there there are current you know kind of common themes um as Aaron mentioned cross commodities is something that we get asked about a lot yeah. um particularly now that you know all of a sudden gas is profitable for power generation it hasn't been in most of Europe for a long time so yeah you know there's kind of easy or, or not easy but but things where we've kind of got the knowledge here already that we can act on um other things that sort of we, we have to work on a bit more before we can you know produce something that customers want yeah definitely so we, we've got uh power subscribers and uh carbon subscribers and um and it's not only the gas subscribers who are wanting to know where the LNG is going to go and when, it's these other uh, subscribers yeah. who are keeping an eye on LNG because that will affect gas and then that will affect power generation. So Aaron, you're planning on more and more incorporating the, that side of things to, to your piece as well to try to reflect maybe where the power demand is, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, because within these LNG analysis pieces that I do run, uh, typically once a fortnight, maybe once a month. Um, I do add a section on the end, basically describing what this LNG glut has done. Um, like uh, Ben said, um, how cheap gas is at the moment, how profitable it is to actually use CCGTs over coal-fired generators. But I think maybe kind of widening that out to kind of just focus on the cross-quality impact. Um, I think another thing as well that I think a lot of our subscribers kind of asked for or are kind of pushing is to calculate costs of shipping gas between interconnectors, cross-border costs. Um, and we have been uh, doing that in particular on the interconnector Britain to Belgium. Hmm. Uh, the Dutch BBL pipeline is going by direction in July, so we are upping our coverage on that. So I think kind of the way the European landscape is, especially the gas market, is kind of just interconnecting it all and hmm. trying to describe what this actually means for prices going forward. Yeah. Um, so I think that's like a main driver within the team at the moment. Yeah, great. Yeah. Um, I the the kind of example that always brings to my mind of, you know, really quick uh, one really quick win that we made as a result of user feedback was uh, a number of subscribers would tell us that uh, they just didn't have time to sit down and trawl through articles that were you know, over a thousand words long and really in depth and um, and just very long. Um, and so as a result of that, uh, a couple of years ago, we imposed a 600 word limit on um, our stories in our daily reports. And um, and and I think that's that's meant that a lot of our stories are more digestible. Um, we're forced to uh, say what we want to say in less words, which is always a good thing for journalism. And it means that um, hopefully our readers will feel like they can open up a story and, and read it to the end without being intimidated by uh, just how long it is. Um, so that's another quick win that we've had from, from reading user feedback. Don't suppose you can remember any quirky bits of feedback that you've heard over your years, Ben? Or... Well, um, when I first started, um, somebody gave us a feedback that um, <clears throat> we need to introduce a glossary 
um, at the end of our publication, which is never a, a good sign um, <laughs> when your readers can't actually understand what you're getting at. Um, so then we, then we made a push to kind of get rid of certain words, get rid of kind of terms that, that most people won't be familiar with. Mm. Um, you know, then, then some people said, well, maybe we've got too simplistic with the language. So it's always a, a kind of fine balancing act. You know, hopefully, um, you know, we're not at the stage where we're completely incomprehensible, um, you know, but also that there is, uh, you know, some real depth to what we're doing. Um, you know, I haven't heard kind of complaints from either side. Um, of that kind of, uh, you know, argument since then. Um, but, you know, obviously we're always kind of looking for feedback, uh, see what people say. Yeah, it's true. It's, um, I, f I fear it's the, the continual challenge of a financial reporter or a kind of business journalist is how do you write in a way that your stories are accessible and interesting and people can understand them without having to scratch their heads over complicated jargon but at the same time not dumbing it down too much there are there are surely going to be certain phrases and words and um, things that you talk about that your industry based audience should should know <laughs> it's 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 a, a balancing act that um, that uh, I like to think we do, we do, we remain balanced at the moment on that. But of course, anyone listening, uh, we really value feedback. And um, obviously, after listening to this podcast, if you want to get in touch um, and you have feedback about any of our reports here at ISIS, do do please get in touch. Um, you can email me, miriam.sears at isis.com. Um, and we'll be happy to hear your thoughts and we'll keep on gathering that feedback and having our meetings and and really thinking about who who is our readers and and what do they want to read about and how can we uh, make changes uh, in order to to meet their their wants thanks for listening I hope you've enjoyed this episode of into the newsroom and don't forget to head to iTunes or Spotify to subscribe or give us a rating or review